Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Kunstler Cast. Thanks for listening in. I've been away a lot doing interviews for my next book and kind of got behind on podcasts, and now I'm back, and I uh, promise that I'm going to do them more frequently. My guest today is Douglas Farr. Doug is an architect, urbanist, author, fellow member of the Congress for the New Urbanism, and the author of the new book, Sustainable Nation, Urban Design Patterns for the Future. This podcast is sponsored by ICA Financial Advisors, David McElvaney's excellent company, and I highly recommend David's podcast, The McElvaney Weekly Commentary, which you can find at McElvaneyWeeklyCommentary.com, really one of the best financial podcasts on the web. Um, the markets are getting smashed today in the early afternoon when I'm recording. They're down 400 points, and I, it looks like we're in for a period of considerable financial turmoil as we go through the summer and fall. And you need to own physical precious metals in your portfolio under the circumstances. Whether they are in your possession in an IRA or stored internationally, it's imperative that you work with a company that advises you on and manages your gold and silver. ICA has been an industry leader since 1972. Your ICA advisor will get you set up correctly from the start and keep you informed about when to make a move, uh, when to add ounces, and even to assist you with an exit strategy as markets change, because the time will come when you might want to convert your, uh, your profits in gold into other assets. So call 800-525-9556 for a free portfolio review. That's 1-800-525-9556, or go to icagoldcompany.com to request information. And now let's get into it with Doug Farr, Chicago architect and author of Sustainable Nation. It's an excellent book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write this book? Jim, good morning. Thank you. This book started out as a second edition of my earlier book, Sustainable Urbanism. And when I sat down to write it, the world had changed dramatically in 10 years. What had changed were a boatload of things. One is uh, the idea that cities were models of sustainability was now old news, and that was a good thing. But the biggest thing was a recognition that came really out of our planning practice and the practices of many other folks who make try and make beautiful places around the country was that something was up with our collective view of the world. In public meetings, everyone was angry all the time. People on the green side of the equation were frustrated that they weren't making progress or they didn't know if they were making progress fast enough, all of those things, which drove years of research that led to the book, really that focused on this question of how long does change take. We inhabit the kind of intersection, the Venn diagram between urbanism and sustainability. That's our practice. That's been my interest and passion for a long time. And so what it does is it the work we do is important. The projects we choose, you know, are all aspirational and ambitious. And then there's this sort of lingering doubt whispering in my ear to say, 
are you going fast enough? Are you, you know, the classic term is, are you scaling up? You know, is, is it good enough to change the world one building at a time or even one place at a time, or is there a way to go faster? And so, you know, 10, 15 years ago, actually, that's what led me to kind of lobby for the creation of Lead ND and then serve as its, uh, you know, chair was this idea that what the world needed was metrics. And if only the right metrics were published, the world would run toward us and make sustainable places. And uh, guess what? The world did need metrics, but people weren't running toward us. And, and so, Doug, let's remind listeners that uh, Lead ND was Lead Neighborhood Development. And, and what does LEED stand for? Yeah, Jim, the LEED is an acronym that was coined in 1996 by the U.S. Green Building Council. And it's their flagship product where um, individuals or developers or building owners can uh, certify their building or their interior space or their entire neighborhood now, you know, as a LEED certified thing. And what does the acronym actually stand for? Uh, it stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. No one knows that, but that's what it does stand well, for. Well, now they do, and that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Doug, why do you think Americans, even intelligent Americans, are so hot for electric cars and flying Teslas and so uninterested in, in walkable towns and cities, in, including people who ought to know better, you know, people who go on vacation to European towns and, and cities and, and find a great deal to admire in them, and then they go back to Minneapolis and Milwaukee and, and they do every full thing imaginable to ruin their town? Well, th thanks for grounding this conversation in the Midwest. So as a native Detroiter, I respect your regionalism. So a lot of the research for the book uh, stripped away kind of the, the kind of veneer of modernism that we trick ourselves to think that we're all rational, non-tribal people. And I think that what it comes down to is that we really are designed, wired, you know, visual, you know, the eye connects to the brain uh, with a super attraction for the bright, shiny thing and the new thing, and that that will take the place of lots of better, less flashy ideas that are also stored in our brain, and that we also have a fairly short-term retention for these things. And so, anyway, advertising, storytelling that Tesla and the autonomous vehicle industry do incredibly well, you know, tricks us into thinking that's what's important when it's really not. Part of the book that your listeners might be interested in is a timeline, a history of civilization. I don't know if you saw that one, Jim, but sure. you did a, con a really concise summary of the history of civilization back to 3100 B.C on one page and you appreciate this fact that change has been constant except that the pace of it picks up and we designate that in kind of different periods you know the kind of ancient period where people sort of stumble along and science wasn't much of a thing so uh, discoveries were slow to come and then the industrial revolution in the 19th century things picked up you know to me marked changes in the very recent past are really relevant to this question of why why are people interested in the you know flying tesla and not the walkable neighborhood but the personal computer in the 80s and 90s you know embodied by steve jobs and apple put information at our fingertips and with it the kind of underbelly that you've documented really well in your blog and elsewhere that tricks us to watch screens and do things contrary to our self-interest and also to cut ourselves off from authentic interactions with the people around us. And then this last phase that interests me a lot, which is covered a bit in the book, is this idea of 
unraveling the, the quirks of the human mind. And so, you know, the author Daniel Kahneman and his work Thinking Fast and Slow and his focus on this term heuristics, the kind of cognitive quirks that we're not remotely rational. We are highly emotional. We are triggered and tricked by all kinds of cues. And Silicon Valley has figured it out faster than we have. All of it works against a collective self-interest. And let's remind listeners that heuristics basically is a word that refers to kind of self-learning or really guesswork that each person does kind of, you know, learning from their gut and their experience. Right. The easier definition that I always think of is when you're confronted with a question that you're struggling to, to answer, what we're wired to do is to substitute a different question. So you know, the easy one is, hey, what's the uh, circumference of that circle? Well, I know it's you know something times pi, but I'll often substitute the number three and just kind of round out. That's a classic heuristic. But I see it you know, across the board in decision-making and public policy venues hell in our in our work when we go after a project and we're in an interview a lot of times the question that the interview team should be posing is who will do the best project for us and that's sometimes hard to assess so i I perceive it in interviews the question they're really answering is do i like this guy (laughs) or who will pay for lunch (laughs) well there you go Yeah. yeah yeah hey doug is the placelessness of america you know the feeling that there really is no place in our places is that finally getting to us Uh, It's been gotten to us a while. The book has kind of a theory of change about it, and basically it goes something like this. Those of you who think that, you know, leadership on climate or leadership on carbon or so on needs to start from the federal government, that's a nice thing to want. It's never worked. It's not going to work. And if you wait for that to be the kind of cheerleader, cavalry on white horses kind of thing, we're going to blow through all of our carbon targets. And so when you look at what is actually sort of sustainable and powerful and undertapped, it is this sort of the idea that people working in their communities, and we can talk a lot about what definition of community, they have agency in the way that, you know, if you want to shout at the TV screen and throw things at, you know, elected officials, whatever, you can do that. It's not effective. It doesn't make any difference. You can watch Colbert at night and feel better about yourself. It doesn't make any difference. What does make a difference is improving your life, you know, immediately with your family and friends, your neighbors and your community, all those kinds of things. Those, those are things where we have agency, we can make a difference, and our our behavior is one that, you know, Jane Goodall is the kind of my go-to source on the definition of culture. Culture, she says, is wisdom passed from one generation to the next based on behavioral observation. So if you see somebody doing it, you basically copy it, and that's how the culture transforms, which I think happens best face-to-face. And so this whole issue that the CNU and, and many of the things you and I have been involved in over the years, you know, concerns itself with is the design of uh, the built environment, of physical communities. The book also says, you know, we screwed the pooch. The United States is messed <laughs> up. You know, six-sevenths, so it's 87% of the United States is automobile dependent. And so the CNU's focus on let's just work in the walkable places. No, no, most most of the country is messed up. And so, but those folks deserve neighborhoods and communities too, even if you're in a cul-de-sac, even if you're in a, you know, I don't know, kind of a drivey place. You know, this idea of the self-governing neighborhood is one of the chapters in the book. This idea of start with throwing a party, you know, collective effervescence, get everybody together. If you need to grill some meat is the kind of common prerogative, that's fine. But, you know, maybe the next time you get together, 
there's a, a much more serious conversation about, hey, what can we do to make things better? You know, the world world doesn't seem to be going in our direction, but maybe we can make a difference here on our block or in our neighborhood. Well, speaking of the CNU, let's speak a little bit of the CNU. Both of us are exalted fellows of the CNU, and you are a former chair of the board of the CNU and the chair of many of its committees. I miss the annual Congress for the New Urbanism, which takes place in a different city every year. This year it was in Savannah. And I wonder if you can tell us something about what happened there, what were the issues that stood out, and the more recent developments in that organization. Yeah, so the setting in Savannah was exemplary. I mean, Savannah is it. That is, you know, the probably some of the best urbanism in in the Americas. Yeah, so that, wonderful town. Yeah, yeah, great. Every you can walk everywhere. You don't even notice you've just gone a mile. So uh, that was pretty terrific. We had uh, a couple of keynotes. There is a sustained emphasis within the CNU on equity and making sure that the benefits of urbanism that are called out in the charter are distributed across society. And so attendees at that Congress, which was apparently the best attended Congress ever, was also one of the most diverse uh, ever. So uh, large percentages of women, uh, people of color, and so on. So that really was, and a lot of young folks. So that was actually pretty darn encouraging. You know, you you fear that uh, a movement that was started 25 years ago by some folks who are now in their 60s, you know, will die out. But no, there's a next generation that sees the value of it, sees the wisdom of it. So my view of what happened in Savannah was very um, kind of localized to, to my experience. We were involved in a workshop applying the principles of sustainable nation, the book that we're talking about today, in a neighborhood called Thomas Square, which is a outlying neighborhood in Savannah, and sort of seeing how the patterns in the book might influence their work going forward. So that it was a really interesting walk around their neighborhood and a What is it physically like? It's due what would be south of the river, about a mile's walk. And it's a it's a settled, gridded you know, older neighborhood of, of Savannah. It is gentrifying in, a, you know, which is a term that means lots of things to lots of people, but basically prices are going up and some folks are getting displaced because they're priced out. You know, they don't own their home or if they do, the taxes are going up, those sort of classic things. So, but at the same time, they're also a neighborhood without a really have over the years, not had a really strong center, like the place you go, uh, you walk, you know, with your family after dinner at night or the place you go to sort of celebrate your, you know, the sports team or the 4th of July, whatever, all those kinds of things. So they're strengthening those things. The patterns in the book that we looked at with them, there were a number of them. One is the housing diversity in the neighborhood is not great, meaning it's a lot of single family houses, but if you want a smaller unit or a rental, you know, a coach house above a garage, those things aren't available. Are they so, prevented by the codes? They are. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, welcome to America. No, nothing new there. But, you know, part of it, I think, Jim, the the revelation I had about three years ago in a project we were doing in the south suburb of Chicago was I think of myself as a, you know, a, a good facilitator and I, I really enjoy public process and public meetings. But I saw myself from the point of view of the audience one night and said, basically, people were looking at me and I think what they saw was, hey, this guy's been sent by the government to change things. And you cannot get a worse framing than that. It was kind of you know, a recapitulation of Reagan's line of, we're from the government, we're here to help you. And right. so this idea that anybody sent from outside is devalued. And whatever you're suggesting, 
triggers, you know, something we describe in the book, the loss heuristic, which is the idea that, which is, you know, pretty well documented by these same behavioral economists like Kahneman, basically says the emotion we feel from losing something is twice as powerful as the pleasure from gaining the same thing. So we really are wired to resist change. And so, and particularly when it's imposed or perceived as being imposed or triggered or catalyzed from outside. So this whole idea of the self-governing neighborhood is this premise to say, how can we redesign the whole conversations about how we improve communities by having it start internal, having it start without an outside authority being the front of the room guy that triggers all the natural heuristics. And so one of the things that's come out of the book is an idea that we're hoping to launch in the spring of 2019 called National Neighborhood Days. Jim, have you ever, as a young person, did you ever have a um, mullet haircut? No, I actually never did because I, I was working on a reverse mullet from my 20s on with a blank space on the top and hair on the side. Yeah. So the classic mullet description is, you know, business is in the front, party in the back. So neighborhood, <laughs> neighborhood Days has as its premise, work in the spring, party in the fall. And so this is an idea that I hope your listeners might react to. There's a national kind of emerging holiday called Parking Day. I don't know if people have heard of that. No, I never have. Well, you have now. So it started in San Francisco 11 years ago, and it's uh, basically uh, the third Friday of, of September each year. And it encourages people to creatively take over a parallel parking space on a street. Um, you're encouraged to actually pay the meter. So you're kind of renting the space, but you might set up a living room or a sofa or a putt-putt golf thing or a hammock or whatever. Like you're having a little outdoor room adjacent to the sidewalk for this a This is day. what we used to call guerrilla urbanism. Yeah. Well, it's now an official holiday in San Francisco and a boatload of other cities. And so you can get permits for this and, and do it. And it's really a cool, cool thing. It's just the kind of like you said, a guerrilla action, it can be really grassrootsy. So, but it's taken 11 years for that to be somewhat known, and hopefully because of the breadth and reach of your amazing podcast, I'm sure we've just doubled the audience of people who know about it. <laughs> well. But so, Bill, yeah, well, well, yeah, he he demurs, but so, but the premise is, can we do that same thing with neighborhood days? You know, spring and uh, yeah. uh, work in the spring party in the fall and get that going over the next year, so that neighborhoods are having conversations about you know what we want to become, how we can be better you know, being a good place to live, those kinds of things. Well, speaking of San Francisco, when I look around the nation, I was just in San Francisco uh, five days ago. You know, you look around New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Washington, a few other places. And what I see when I look at that is the effects of financialization on our cities. You know, the uh, amazing concentration of wealth in only a few places and only a few cities. You certainly don't see that in St. Louis and Kansas City and, uh, you know, a lot of other places in the Midwest. And that financialization seems to be foundering a bit now on a sea of bad debt, you know, borrowed money that will never be paid back. I wonder what you think about what financialization has done to these places and how it distorts our sense of what a successful city is. Well, Jim, that sounds like a topic for a future book you should write, because that's totally in your wheelhouse. I will, I will just say that I, I, too, have spent a fair amount of time in the Bay Area and the high-priced cities, of which there are only a handful, you know, Washington, Boston, uh, Bay Area, Seattle, etc. And so 
there's at least two countries, probably three countries in the United States, and that is one. The book, Sustainable Nation, has 70 different patterns of urban design in it, of which 14 were contributed by folks from the Bay Area. So there's a lot of no-cal thinking in in the book, um, one of which was a pattern by Patrick Kennedy about micro-units. And so micro-units, for your, if your listeners don't know, are basically tiny apartments or tiny condos you know, under two, three, four hundred square feet that are popular in San Francisco now because of the incredibly high cost of land. We codified that as a pattern. And Patrick Kennedy thinks that this, the micro unit is not just for the high priced Bay Area or New York, that it's viable in any uh, community that has a supermarket, has a park, and, and has a main street or a downtown that takes two hours to experience. So that's his view. So that actually includes several hundred cities across the country could have as an export the housing product of the, as you said, highly monetized uh, Bay Area. So I don't have answers for uh, a lot of the questions that, that hyper-economies like the Bay Area have other than to, to observe this. One of, the, one of the themes that runs through the book is how long change takes, how fast things move. And we have one of the patterns by a gentleman, a Dr. Antwi Ockham from Oakland, and it's about making your community immune to gentrification. And it's, you know, it's got a lot of policies and it says all the right things. But what I realized when he submitted it is that all of his remedies to, you know, um, displacement, gentrification, whatever you want to call it, are much, much slower than the market. And so the minute you've got a whiff, the first person to say, I think we're gentrifying, it's already happened and you can't catch up. It's already cats out of the bag. It's faster than you are. What it does, and I'm really a big believer in the strategy of this stuff, is the place you should be trying to do the affordable stuff are the places that have not popped yet, right? So, you know, kind of hard to do, really expensive per unit in a city like New York or, or, you know, the Bay Area. Not that you shouldn't try, but like you can get 10 times more done in the place that has not appreciated yet. And so that's, that's planning. That's thinking ahead. It's not the perfect answer to your question. That's what I got. Speaking of cities, uh, the U S probably faces some enormous demographic shifts in the years ahead. You know, there are a lot of, a lot of things are happening out there, including, you know, some things up with the climate. You could argue in, in various directions on that, but uh, some things up, there are some places in America that seem that would seem to have pretty poor prospects, you know, places like Phoenix and Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Houston, Miami. Those are not places I would feel very sanguine about in the future. But there's little sense of urgency about that. Nobody really seems to care all that much about it. What's your yeah. view of that? Uh, couldn't agree more. There's lots of things that people don't care at a whit about. So just let's take Florida to start. So, you know, one of the things we did in the book was cooked up a tool, a device, a tool we call a change line. Jim, I hope you saw those. But it, basically, we were trying to ask the question, how long does it take to reverse course on something? And with a particular emphasis on carbon and CO2, because a lot of our practice is about, you know, net zero buildings, things like that. And what we figured out was that the easiest way to project, like, when will the U.S. decarbonize its economy 
was to ask a question, well, how long did other things take to reverse themselves? And so the kind of best data point we found was actually cigarette smoking in the United States. So the cigarette rolling machine was only invented around 1890. And so cigarettes are kind of a perfect data set. So Americans, 1% of Americans smoked cigarettes in the year 1900. Our smoking is amongst adults in the U.S. peaked in 1963 at about 43%, and now it's going down. And so if you look at the the slope of that curve, the upslope of getting to a peak of a problem, too much cigarette smoking, and its decline, its decline is a little slower than it was to peak. And so if you put the carbon line over the top of the cigarette line, what you find is we would decarbonize in the year 2150, which is about 125 years too late to avoid two degrees C. So a couple things. One is Florida this chart is calling you, which is to say you guys should be absolutely leading the charge because if that plays out, Florida's deeply underwater. I don't know what would happen in terms of, uh, you know, cities can probably moat themselves off for the first five or 10 feet of sea level rise, but at 50 and 100 feet, not a thing. So, well, they're also dealing with the porosity of the watershed, you know, uh, which is made of porous limestone. And if the sea level just goes up a little bit, that limestone watershed aquifer gets, it gets invaded by saltwater. And that's, that's all she wrote really for the Atlantic right. coast. We'll see what the wealth and what the efforts are made to extend living in places like Miami look like. But, um, you know, the green building movement, the Bullet Center, which is one of the case studies in the book, I'll just share it because it could be relevant. I hear you that Miami would lose its normal kind of drinking water aquifer. But the Bullet Center in Seattle functions for all potable and toilet flushing water simply by the water it catches on its roof. And so, um, you know, that's an old thing that humans used to do is use roofs to catch water. We got out of the habit. We could get in the habit. So I can I can see technological solutions to to address the drinking water issue in Miami, but it would be a heavy lift of an investment to do that for a whole region. So yeah, and uh, then you've got the problem of, uh, you know, Brickell Avenue being underwater. Oh, that. Oh, oh that. that. Yeah. But this conversation or this line of thought all started with this idea of we're ignoring lots of things. You prompted me with a kind of list of cities that yeah. that ought to, people ought to be, you know, concerned, concerned about. about. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say, I think, you know, people mostly live their daily lives. People that are, you know, that look far into the future often are affiliated with, with uh, you know, it's their job. You're an author. I'm a planner. So we think about these things. The book, Sustainable Nations, attempt to kind of frame this differently is the basic thesis of the book, which is now that we sort of see our place in time and we see how long change takes and we see the various uh, trends that we'd love to get get reversed, like carbon, CO2 in our economy. And the big one we haven't talked about, and big in two senses, is obesity. So I'm going to digress for a second and just talk about the obesity thing, because it, it was worse than I ever imagined. So United States, we all know, spends more money on health care than any, any other country. It's between 18 and 19 percent of our gross domestic product. Basically, one dollar and five goes to keep us, uh, you know, paying into this monster system. Yeah. Right now, we have we lead the world in obesity uh, for large nations, but there are at least we're not even in the top ten in terms of small nations. So, New Guinea, places like that, have obesity in the fifty and sixty percent range. Obesity is a global thing; it's yet to peak in any country. So, all of our attempts to apply our 
our change line protocol, nobody's peaked. So we don't know how long it takes to peak. We don't know how long it takes to go down because it's never gone down anywhere. And then the other detail, which was shocking to me, was a study that says we spend 21% of our healthcare spending in the United States treating or dealing with obesity. We spend more money on obesity than we do on smoking starting, I think the year was 2008. So we're 10 years into uh, obesity being the big deal. The United States is the 21% of GDP means we spend about uh, or 20% of healthcare costs being spent on obesity means it's roughly 4% of GDP, which is what we spend annually on defense. Wow. So think of all these aircraft carriers, jets, uh, a million person standing army, all this kind of stuff. That's what we spend on obesity. The United States is projected to be 50% obese in the year 2030, which is 12 years from now. It's basically we gain 1% a year in obesity, and we will be spending more and more of our GDP treating a very avoidable thing, obesity. And so, you know, the cost of abating or mitigating climate is a fraction of the 4% we spend on obesity. So anyway, I, I just wanted to kind of get, get that one out. By the way, I encourage people, you know, anywhere in the country, whenever they talk about the health care issue, to use the word racketeering. Because uh, we really need to correctly identify the system that, you know, we're dealing with. It's a it's a racketeering system. You know, I want to run something past you that's based on, on what you said about smoking cigarettes. Because it, it fascinated me to realize, you know, when you kind of look at the history of, of the country, that as the United States industrialized, cigarette smoking became more and more popular. Until, okay. you know, you get to sort of the apex of it all in the 1940s during World War II, you know, with... And everybody is smoking cigarettes. And the weird thing is, it's like everybody is trying to emulate a little factory. Like they're totally into the spirit of the industrial. They're so into the spirit of the industrial age that they have to pretend that they have a little smokestack in their head. You know, and they're puffing away. You end up with, you know, Humphrey Bogart becomes a celebrity because of the way he smokes Chesterfields, you know. It's just a very peculiar thing. I, I stopped smoking about 35 years ago, luckily. Uh-huh. I remember when I was a child, you know, walking through Times Square and seeing this big billboard with a hole in the middle of a guy's face blowing artificial smoke rings out over Times Square. Yeah. Do you remember I that saw- at all? I do. I yeah. do. So it's a very strange thing the way that human beings sort of metaphorically act out the period of history that they're in. I think that we can anticipate some very strange expressions of human behavior in the years ahead. Now, at the risk of being a little bit too windy here, I want to run past you my own theory that both the suburbs and the big metroplex cities are headed into kind of a collapse scenario, each in its own way. And, you know, suburbia's dark future is probably self-evident to many listeners. But I think a lot of people assume that the cities will just keep on growing. And if if the suburbs fail, people will just move into the cities. And I actually don't see that happening. I I expect the cities to get in as much trouble as the suburbs uh, in a slightly different way. The process will be a little different, but it'll be very messy. And mainly because they've exceeded their scale, they've exceeded a scale that's consistent with the energy and resource and capital realities of the future. What makes you think that we're actually going to be able to sustain places like Dallas and Atlanta and Washington, D.C., blah, 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 at the scale that they have attained? Yeah. 
uh, you know, I see a human capacity for keeping on, keeping on, even if it's miserable, even if it's terrible. So one of the things that the book focuses on is this issue of, uh, again, it's the recurring theme of we really are creatures of habit, and it served us really well during evolutionary periods to basically do what your elders told you. Why? Because they had survived to a middle or an older age to make tomorrow a, a copy of today because whatever you did, you weren't eaten by a lion and you somehow figured out how to get yourself fed. And so that wiring exists in the brains of the people in the places you're concerned about, you know, in Dallas or Phoenix or, or wherever that you see as you declare to be kind of unlivable, impossible, all those kinds of things. Those folks are wired to, to cope and, and to, you know, do their best kind of with what they're given. So I think people persist, you know, against their self-interests, uh, to a great extent. I, can I, do two things. Can it, one is I love your racketeering thing. And there's a quote in the book that links together three racketeering kind of layers. One is smoking, one is carbon, and one is sugar. And so we haven't talked about those. And there, oh, yeah. And I'll, if I can read. Go ahead. For, this is page 128 for those following along. For generations, three industries that sold highly profitable products they knew were threats to public health and well-being stayed in business by sowing uncertainty. Smokers can get hooked on nicotine, and the Tobacco Industry Research Committee, TIRC, knew it as early as 1954. Carbohydrates, not fats, give people coronary heart disease and weight gain, and the Sugar Research Foundation knew it as early as 1965. The earth can get, quote, cooked by continuing to burn fossil fuels and ExxonMobil along with the consensus of the petroleum industry, knew it as early as 1982. And what's interesting about those sort of the telescoping of those three industries is you see a recurring thing of an industry or industry cluster having a product that's profitable that's bad for us. They use marketing and obfuscation to continue to sell that product. And I would love the study that shows this, but I believe it to be true, that the public subsidy to remedy the problem exceeded the private profit from selling the thing in the first place. Wow. So, you know, how much money was made by, let's just say, sugar and fat related things to, you know, to compensate for a 4% of our GDP subsidizing the remedy to sugar and, and, you know, bad diets, right? Yeah, so like, or ima just imagine the money that we've spent on trying to remedy smoking. Smoke, smoking, sugar, climate, all of them. And so it's a curious, again, look back into history and how broken our Congress is. That's another theme in the book, which is you look to the federal government to be your buddy and to fix these things. They really haven't for the last 50 years. I think that, you know, lobbying and certainly the influence, the swamp, um, you know, is a real thing. And it's perpetuated these industries to keep making money and, and to pawn off the remedy for the harm they've caused onto the public. And I don't care if you're red state or blue state, you should be peeved at that. It's an awful thing. And well, so, that, that, that suggests that it's even more important that we use the correct vocabulary to identify these things, because if we're able to identify this activity as racketeering, we actually might be able to do something about it. We actually well, know how to deal with racketeers. <laughs> well, I, we prosecute I invite... Them. I, yeah, I invite a clever uh, legal strategist to take you up on that. Not my area. Sure, you know, the sure. one thing I will say, though, which what needs to happen with carbon is something called stranding the asset, which is this idea that we need to leave coal 
oil and gas in the ground, unburned, unconsumed. That's the answer. It is not to extract it slower. Extracting carbon is akin to bleeding. So would you rather stop bleeding or just bleed more slowly? So we, we focus oftentimes on the wrong thing. So, But then you ask the question, well, how is it that the trillions of dollars that the world – declares as wealth uh, that is collectively owned via stocks, uh, you know, in Exxon's and, and Massey Coal and all these different groups, right? How do you get the value of that to go from trillions to zero to the point that it stays in the ground? And I really think that there's a kind of advanced thinking that people at your level and Jim, the people you engage with, I would love their reactions to, which is how do you write down trillions of dollars fast, uh, because I've seen it with certainly the tobacco industry in the United States is fascinating. The tobacco settlement that they cut, you know, which was what, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. and it seemed like a boatload of money. And, uh, you know, all but one state took that money and put it in the general fund and didn't spend it, no longer spends it on smoking abatement. It was just kind of, it was money that came in you know, a lot of chest pumping, boy, we'll stop smoking now with this great money. It was just a little taxation that the tobacco industry settled into. And what did we give them in in exchange? Immunity from prosecution about the harm they were causing. So that was a brilliant move on the tobacco industry to stay in business and pay a fairly small indulgence to continue to kill people prematurely. So knowing all that, how does, how does carbon play out in the years to come? Because if we have a standoff, of trillions of dollars of, of investments and in value and assets that people want to realize that value when it's the deathly outcome that the minute all that money to realize the value, you have to extract the stuff from the ground, sell it and burn it. How do you work through that standoff? And I do think, you know, a conversation I have not heard anybody talking about is like, do we need a weird tax write-off to do the evil thing, to reward the people that whose investments are killing us, but, but, you know, real politic, like just to get them to, to not extract their carbon out of the ground. Like I, I think about that, you know, in the years to come, Lincoln, this may seem weird, but I know I've been reading about, you know, link all of Lincoln's speeches, you know, I'm living in Illinois and towards the end, one of his uh, great speeches might've been the emancipation proclamation floated this idea of paying slave owners, uh, for their asset, just as a way to speed up the end of to buy off the slave states and to speed up the cessation of slavery. It never came to that. But like Lincoln thought of that, like we have to go in and pay money to the people doing the bad thing to get them to stop faster. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned food a little while ago and you're a Midwesterner. Do you think that agribusiness as usual will be able to carry on? Because I don't. And if not, uh, how will America feed itself? And how will the prospect of a failing agribiz sector affect the relationship between towns, cities, and their food supplies? Yeah, well, you're you're much more dark on this issue than I am. So, you know, I think agribusiness has lots of problems with it. We've, you know, sterilized and denuded the landscape. We've polluted the streams. We, you know, the, my first book, Sustainable Urbanism, talked about, you know, basically our food supply dripping in oil, all of which is true. But here in the Midwest, I don't see it going, you know, I see it able to, Uh, protect its interests, to stay in business, and to put a different face on it. I mean, I don't know if you've heard any of the interviews with the uh, CEO of 
Pepsi. It appears on the Freakonomics uh, podcast. But it was fascinating to hear her talk about how at the helm of a company, Pepsi, that sells you, I don't know, chips and soda and things like this, um, how she was kind of managing it to position it to be, you know, a friend of healthy foods. Like, so she <laughs> characterized it as saying we basically we have our healthy, you know, offerings. We have our pleasure offerings, which was their kind of rebranding of uh, sugared colas and salty chips. <laughs> and they had the kind of hybrid in the middle. And they were they were just they were now serving you know what people wanted. And so they were no longer just the evil obesity driving Pepsi. They were positioned to be all things to all people. So I watched it's a fascinating thing. And she was really smart and had some integrity, but was running an evil enterprise and moving it, you know, to the middle. So I think your declaration that it's all going to collapse and fail, you know, they're smart people with a lot of money behind them and they're going to, you know, figure out a way to survive, I think. So that's what I think. The reason I think that they probably won't, apart from the the fact that they depend so heavily on petroleum inputs, is that I think they're also going to be facing a shortage of capital. I think generally we're going to be entering an era of capital scarcity. And capital is the next biggest input, you know, in agribiz after oil and gas-based fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides. So they have to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to put their crop in. And I think that's going to be a huge problem. Now, a related thing that I see is that uh, the inland waterway system of America is going to become much more important again than it has been in generations as globalism withers, or at least, you know, we contend with this tremendous friction out there in the world over trade, and and a lot of trade relations and aspects of globalism are in trouble. And I think that that will probably refocus the North American economy inward at the same time that we're going to have trouble in the trucking industry and moving things around. So I would see that as actually something potentially of great benefit to places along the Ohio River, the Great Lakes, the Mississippi and Missouri. And the canal systems that run up through the Hudson-St. Lawrence system and and, uh, the Erie system. Yeah, I've appreciated your insights, Jim, on this over the years about, you know, should we make every urban waterfront a a la-la land of, you know, happy soccer fields and things like that? Or condos. Right. And should or should we retain it for functional waterscapes? And that was actually an active uh, body of ideas when we were writing the lead neighborhood development standard about what's the proper use of an urban waterfront. So uh, anyway, you've been influential in those ways. But I, I was going to say, one of the things I hope to talk to you about on this um, podcast was the whole idea of peak oil. I've listened to you and sat in the front or second row many times uh, over the years with the long emergency and peak oil and all that sort of stuff. Supply may have peaked, but it doesn't really matter. It's a price thing. And that I see that People will continue to extract carbon out of the ground, oil, gas, and coal, um, as long as it's permitted and as long as it's economic. And we won't ever extract all of it. Some of it's way too expensive, but I have no concern about it running out or or hitting a price point where somehow economies crash and dystopia applies. Uh, I wish that were so, but I don't think so. I think, I think the- it's already underway. And in fact, if you actually look closely at this situation, you'll discover that 
that the oil producers have not made a red cent from shale oil. And the whole thing has been kind of a, an amazing and stupendous stunt based on cheap lending and acquiring more and more debt that will never be paid back. So, in fact, uh, I would actually disagree with you pretty strenuously about where we're at. It's already manifesting in the destruction of the American middle class. The public just doesn't see the connection between our travails in the energy sector and our travails in normal middle class life and, and the problems that that's having. I hear you, Jim, but let me ask you this one. So if it's breaking down and it's all kind of, you know, financial hocus pocus, why why the hell do we keep, you know, driving and this crazy, you know, retro thing about coal? But we're using a ton of natural gas and a ton of oil still. You know, Herb Stein, the old uh, Nixon era economic advisor, said it pretty succinctly. He said things go on until they don't and can't. And that's that's pretty much what it is. You know, we're just, you know, you spoke a little while ago about habits of mind and, and habits of behavior among people historically. And that's where we're at. You know, we're used to we're used to all that. And we're we can't imagine not running all the stuff that we're running. So we do what we do until we can. I would just submit to you that the debt problem is much graver than most people uh, imagine. Well, that may be. I just I was going to say my point of view is I uh, we did those projections on how long it might take to decarbonize the American economy. And for the first six months of lectures I gave on that, I was really uncertain what to do with it. I identified the problem. I it was sort of bad news. I was told by my the person who wrote my the forward for the book, Jeanette Sadek Khan, Doug. You've just come up with the most depressing, counterproductive set of data. Stop, burn your book, go back to your practice and do net zero buildings. You'd make a lot bigger <laughs> debt in the, in the problem. So, so that was like a kick in the butt to figure out this whole accelerance, which is the middle, middle of the book, which is just because it's a line on a page doesn't mean that's what's true. And I'm, uh, I think you and I are, are perfect human compliments. I'm the eternal optimist and you are, you are what you are. I, I, I'm a very cheerful pessimist. Yeah, yeah. No, a lot of fun, too. A lot of fun, especially at parties and things like that. <laughs> I get all of that. But I am interested in the tools that we're starting to apply in a not-for-profit that we are launching in affiliation with a book called The Pattern Project to speed up change. And so one thought exercise to go through is something we are calling carbon-free 2050. And so this one, we're starting it in Chicago because that's where we are, Carbon Free Chicago 2050. And it starts with a paraphrasing of Rachel Carson's beginning of Silent Spring. If your listeners have read that book, it basically starts with a story of, I woke up one summer morning and oh my gosh, there were no birds chirping. What happened? And it's, you know, it's really a kind of intro, a framing to her book on the deep concerns, problems, lethalities associated with, you know, pesticides and just chemicals in everyday use, which I read in the paper this morning, we're kind of rolling back stupidly, uh, you know, at the EPA rolling back uh, regard for these assessments. But anyway, mm -hmm. back to carbon-free future, the paraphrase we have is imagine it's January 1st, 2051. And that morning in Chicago, no fossil fuels are used to um, power our grid, our vehicles, or our buildings, and period. So that's it. That's the future we want to get to, work backwards from that. And so it's always hard to be way out ahead, but I think unless you define success 
with great clarity and put a date on it, those two are the things I think that really fundamentally accelerate change, which is a lot of people are fuzzy about what they want the future to be, and they can't articulate it, and they don't know how long it might take and all those kinds of things. So the book was a deep deep dive in a lot of this, and I'll just share there's a CNU angle here, too. The CNU is doing a strategic plan. I was chair of CNU, and we were doing this, and it was not strategic. It never defined success, and it was incredibly frustrating to me. It's a good, you know, it's good, moves us forward, but this idea that we could, CNU could be in business for 50 years or a thousand years or 10,000 years because it never defined success to put itself out of business, right? So that's kind of my kind of harsh, harsh judgment of, of not just the CNU, but a lot of, a lot of organizations don't define success. The analogy that I was provided by our common friend, Jennifer Hurley was in world war two, everyone knew what the hell success looked like, which was taking Berlin, you know, once Berlin was captured and the, you know, the Nazi leadership went down, war was over. So, you know, what was success Berlin? So, you know, the book defines this idea of define your Berlin, define your ultimate success. And so this carbon free Chicago is an example of, of that. So I, you know, would love to kind of spur your listeners interest in, uh, you know, thinking about the work that they're involved in either as, you know, private businesses or serving on boards or committees or just neighbors in a block, like what would make the world a better place Define it with clarity and put a date on it. And that, that alone focuses and, and allows you to sort of sift and throw away a lot of stuff that you might've wasted a lot of time doing and is better spent really focused and strategic. Well, it is a sound and admirable goal. I'll say that I'm not persuaded that we're going to get to that without severely downscaling all of our activities and the things that we live in. But we'll have to see about that. I, I have one other thing I want to get to with you, though. Yeah. And that is something that's troubled me a lot in recent years. The peculiar and corrosive absence of artistry in our everyday world. And it pervades our culture. The built expressions on the landscape have seemed to me to be kind of an expression of entropy, you know, it's something you don't want to mess with, this immersive ugliness of the American landscape and the places that we live in. And the only thing that the architectural community seems to offer is more sleek surfaces and sheer finishes. Yes. And after so many decades, have they not yet learned that less is not necessarily more? Wow, Jim, that let me try and unpack that. So I will be speaking at the AIA American Institute of Architects National Convention next week, week after next, New York, uh, on many of these same issues. So as a, an architect, uh, practicing architect for, you know, years, a fellow of the AIA I appreciate that we are in a profession that has been called uh, by society to make a big impact. And that is to say, I think that climate change is arguably society's first deadline. And you can say, well, whose who's job is it to meet this deadline? And I think that the architects, you know, this is very much how we run our practice, but I believe it to be true, are uniquely positioned in the building sector to be the only logical leaders to make, make a big difference. And when you look back, I'm, I'm also a big fan of culture and like and why people made the choices they made. Very few people chose the profession of architecture to abate carbon and climate. I mean, maybe I did and maybe 10 of my friends, but not a lot of people. Man, very few architects, I think, chose the profession to be city builders. They 
they are much more of the spirit of the sleek, all the things, shiny surfaces, all the things you've been talking about, uh, or they've defaulted into that. Architecture is an apprentice profession. There's a graphic in the book, Jim, I don't know if you've noticed it, uh, we call the volcano graphic that sort of talks about how uh, all the isms that apply both in the profession of planning and the profession of architecture, in an apprentice profession, you are trained by someone older than you that had a certain way of doing things in school. And then you get to a firm or firms, again, you're trained by the elders on how to do your, your work, your project. And oftentimes they are training you on their ideals in architecture or their the people they you know earlier architects historic architects that they hold in high regard and so my teachers at the university of michigan at columbia university were direct descendants of elios had worked for aero serenin le corbusier mise van der right so those yeah. those are the those were my teachers and they taught me the values of their idols right so so in a mid-career, this is the thing that's kind of interesting and confounding, is in a mid-career, architects, I believe, need to pivot from an apprentice profession, which is actually very conservative. It tends to perpetuate old ideas. You know, Chicago is filled with these glass buildings now that all have their source, I think, in Mises' sketch from 1921 of the glass skyscrapers. So that's 97 years ago, a guy did a drawing, and we're still thinking that's that's what we should aspire to. So talk about conservative. Oh, my God, we're all of that. So so how does it work that a profession changes mid-generation? So I have an answer for that, which is, and we see this in our practice, the young people don't care about meets the sketch. And they do care. They're inheriting a world we kind of screwed up and we're handing to them. They're really hungry to do it. And so this conversation at the AIA next week is part of it is how can firms be led from the bottom up? The least powerful, the young, the last person in the door that is the least qualified but probably is the most passionate about carbon and climate and so on. How can they inform up the ladder the old white guys that run the firm that kind of don't care, you know, that are just sort of accustomed to doing things in a way. So it's really, you have to kind of understand the dynamics in the profession and the firm, I think, to make those those changes. So I'm really intrigued by this stuff. Sure. Well, events may determine how that works out more than personality. So we'll have to stand by on that. I want to say thank you to Douglas Farr for coming on the podcast. We've known each other for at least 15, 20 years, yes. and we're both members of the Congress for the New Urbanism, one of the best agents of change in America. Yes. And Douglas Farr is the author of Sustainable Nation, which is published by Wiley, and it's now out. It's a wonderful, illustrated, richly illustrated book with a lot of interesting charts that will help you understand the world that we're in and the, the future that we're facing. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, and we will ride again, Doug. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. <laughs>